Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. Sorry, I cannot bust out a monster truck rally style Friday, Friday, Friday for you. Uh, I have barely made it through this week with kind of a crippled voice due to some sort of winter crud. I guess the crud didn't get the notice that winter is almost over, and it showed up right at the end to sock me in the mouth. Like, I made it through this whole year without this happening to me. I thought I was in the clear. I had the weak voice after the workshop this fall, but that is going to happen. I, I thought, man, I got through for a year without having my throat crapped on. But, eh, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Anyway, we're on a Friday. It is time for an expert counsel Q&A show. This is a great one. And I've got a, I got two special guests today. Uh, one, Kim Commando. Kim and I have been doing a content exchange with each other. She runs a segment by me on family preparedness on her podcast. And in return, I run a segment for her on mine. Given where we're going to start out with today's show, today's show is going to be kind of themed as we go through it. We're going to start out. Uh, with technological stuff for about three things. Then we're going to have two segments on kind of health-related, and then we're going to finish up with two segments on education. So it's going to be a, kind of a sort of a theme to show today. Not quite as much variety, but really cool stuff, and I'm really excited about it. Anyway, Kim came to me and said, "We like what what should we talk about for you guys? Gave me some options. And one was keeping your text, your photos, and your credit cards private on your mobile devices. And I'm like, that sounds like it's right up the alley of my audience. So we're going to have Kim Commando talk about that. And then I had a question come in on audio and video production. person wants to do a Vimeo content series online. And they had like this certain equipment they already had, and they want to use it to mix sound. And I went, yeah, if you want me to tell you how to make your content compelling, I'm your guy. You want me to tell you how to market your content? I'm your guy. Yeah, you want me to tell you how to monetize your content? I'm your guy. You want me to tell you how to edit your content? I probably ain't going to do that in audio on a uh, podcast, but I, I can do it, right? You want me to tell you how to get your audio mixing and your video all together, and you want me to do it any other way except the way that I already am set up to do it, where somebody did it for me? Not your guy. So I said, Jack... Well, who did that for you? Who set all your stuff up for you for your video production work with, like, Bill Tom for Breakfast and all that? I said, I know. Aaron Hatch. You guys know Hatch if you've been to my workshops. He usually does the video for the workshops and stuff like that. Uh, so I sent this over to Aaron. He got us an answer. So we're going to talk about getting good audio on your video production. We're going to talk about apps. I mean, Kim's going to be telling us about apps to keep our stuff private. But what if you're an entrepreneur and you want to build a business, you're building a website, you say, I want an app. So when somebody says, there's an app for that, you're like, yeah, and it's my app. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe or maybe not. Not every website should have an app, really. Not every entrepreneur needs an app. Some do, some don't. Uh, and then when you do get an app built, I mean, one of my frustrations for years in, in, in the world of entrepreneurship and being online is coders. Man, I think there should be a, a deal. When you hire a website developer coder, They get like an implant put in the back of their head that can cause pain. And whenever they don't do what they promise to do, you get to push a button until they do it or they give you your money back. I mean, that's 
right? So it's hard to find good help when it comes to development and coding. But Nicole Sauce can tell us all about it, how to find the right person, and how to know if we should even be going down that path. Because it can be expensive. And this is my rules when, when you're going to spend money in business. If it won't eventually put more money back into your business and or do the same thing by saving you money, don't do it. Don't do it. If I'm going to put 20 grand into something and I'm not going to get but a couple hundred bucks in return out of it, that is a bad business decision, right? This idea might be really good that this guy asked about. We'll have Nicole talk all about it. Then we're going to shift. We're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about some health issues. Nurse Amy's going to talk to us about first aid kits. That's a FAQ, F-A-K. And, uh, you know, the, the question really is, like, how do I put together a first aid kit for kids, for babies? Like, I had a baby like six months old and one's like two years old. The way I really look at that, that is more about making sure the first aid kit that you have for everybody meets the needs of your kiddos. And Nurse Amy's going to talk about that. Gary Collins is going to talk about intermittent fasting, what it really is, what it does for us, what it doesn't do for us, how to do it, how to pull it off. Gary will be covering that today for us. Then we're going to shift into education. Mike and Sue Laprise are going to talk about how to get a homeschool education for your kiddos when you're in a two-income family situation. That's the biggest impediment most people have to taking the step of putting the education of their children in their own hands is needing that double income. And then I have a question for me, indirectly related to education. It's more about funding education. The person basically says, Jack, you say 529A plans suck. I believe you. But I've been saving for my kids for their future, and what should I do with this money if I shouldn't put in a 529 plan? How do I protect it from the evil tax vulture? That, that big eagle on the back of your dollar bill? That's a vulture. He takes your money. That's what it really is, right? How do I protect it from that? And I'm adding, I'm appending to that, because it's actually a really easy answer. Um, but I'm appending to that an alternative to summer jobs when it comes to funding college educations, because one of the ways that we, we make things go further for kids in school is by making sure that we get as little debt as possible if they are indeed going to college. That's what we're talking about today. This is going to be a fantastic episode. If you can't tell, I am excited about it. Real quick, before I bring our first... Uh, expert on. Let's go ahead and remind you guys, if you love this show, if you don't ever want it to go anywhere, if you want to be able to, you know, years from now, still pick up your phone and hit play and hear Jack Spirico, the expert counsel, our special guests, all the stuff we do to educate and entertain, then you want to become a member of the MSB. And it's painless because I'm promising you, become a member today, log in, go to the benefits section, start looking through all of the vendors we have and what they provide. Once a month, go in there and look. Say, here's stuff I'm going to need this month. See if anybody provides it. Use the discount codes. Your membership will not just pay for itself. It will be profitable. And why wouldn't you have a membership that supports the show you listen to and puts money back in your pocket? That would be a bad financial decision. So for financial reasons alone, consider becoming a member of the MSB today. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to learn more. Uh, and you can sign up there. And remember, law enforcement officers, uh, members of the Peace Corps, uh, prior service and active service military, firefighters, first responders, paramedics, anything like that, if you've ever served in that capacity at all, you qualify for a service discount, email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, make sure TSPC discount 
I'm sorry, TSBC service discount is in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you the discount code. Do that before, not after you join. If you do it after you join, I it it, it it's a software limitation, guys. I I can't fix it once you've signed up. So please do it before, not after you join. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, our first expert today. Again, Kim Commando is one of my favorite people. When I was approached by Kim's staff about having her be on this show, my my immediate response was, hell F yeah, right? Like, I, I explain this to you. Kim has been on AM radio for decades, right? And when I used to drive all across the country, and a lot of times I would end up on the road on the weekends, I always tuned into the Kim Commando show because she has such insights into technology. I, I actually couldn't believe it when they're like, yeah, we don't just want to put Kim on your show. We want you to be on Kim's podcast, Like, wow, that's great, because apparently Kim cares about preparedness, which is awesome. And if you think about it, someone coming from a technology world should care about preparedness. So as I was saying during the intro, Kim's folks came to me, had a variety of subjects, and one of them was keeping your text, photos, and credit cards private on your smartphone. I thought that would be right up the alley of the TSP, alley of the TSP audience. So, hey, Kim, thanks for being on the show again, and tell us all about how to keep our stuff on our phones private. Thanks, Jack. I'm glad to be back. You know, at least once a week, I get a question from one of our listeners asking how they can hide messages from prying eyes, whether it's from their spouses or their kids or coworkers. Now, I would never advocate deceiving people you love, especially your spouse, but I get that sometimes we just want to keep things private. So today, we're going to talk about a couple of apps you can use to hide what I'll call the big three necessities in privacy. They are, number one, your text messages, of course. How about two? Well, guess it's the photos, right? And number three is your credit cards. I'm Kim Commando, America's digital goddess, and you can visit commando.com with a K, of course, for everything digital. And you can find out where you can listen to my podcasts. You can actually hear me on more than 400 radio stations from coast to coast, and you can watch my TV show airing on Bloomberg Network every Saturday afternoon. So if you ever wonder, how do I keep the content in your phone hidden and also safe? My phone hidden and safe. Well, I have the answers. Let's just take a look. Three apps for the big three necessities in privacy. Text messages, photos, and credit cards. Starting with an important privacy necessity, your credit cards. We're all familiar with payment apps like PayPal. It's been around for so many years. And how about Zeal, which is a direct competitor to PayPal? These apps allow you to send money without turning over your credit card information. But if you want a truly anonymous way to use your credit card, we found a solution that's kind of like a burner credit card. It's called Pay, and it's from a website, privacy.com. The way that it works is that it creates what it calls a virtual private card for one-time use that's linked to your real credit cards. The merchant gets the one-time use credit card number, and then your actual credit card is protected by privacy.com. You can find it on Google Play and the iTunes App Store. And you can also set some max charge limits on each card or just close a card with a swipe. The downside of paybyprivacy.com is that not all credit cards are available yet, including credit cards where you actually earn rewards. Okay, so that's a way to hide your credit cards. Let's move on to our second app, Jack, where now we're protecting your photos. It's called Private Photo Vault, and it's available on Google Play and iTunes App Store. The benefits of this one, locking your photos and videos behind a pin. It also has a built-in private web browser with a photo downloader. Now, the downside to this app is that it stores photo on your device. So if you've been using the cloud to save your photos and you transfer your photos from the cloud to a private photo vault, well, you're going to eat up a lot of your phone storage. 
Or if you lose or destroy your phone, you actually will lose your photos. So my suggestion, use this to hide only the photos, you get my drift, that maybe need to be hidden. So photos of the dog, rainbows, ponies, and flowers in your dinner, those are fine for the cloud. If you plan on using this long-term for photos that mean a lot to you, make sure you manually back up because, again, lose your phone, you lose your photos. Okay, once you download the app, you set a pin code and start creating private albums. It's simple, and it works, although if you have a large library of photos and videos, it can take a while to set it up. It has more than 290,000 reviews. Wow. And overall, it gets a 4.8 star rating, so not too shabby. Now, the negative comments that we researched and found in the App Store is that, well, the advertisement's on the free version, but of course you'd expect that. There's a premium version for $4.99 that removes ads and lets you create unlimited photo albums, and you can send photos by text message. Again, check it out in your favorite App Store. It's called Private Photo Vault by Legendary Software Labs. And that brings us to app number three, hiding your text messages. This next app that I'm going to tell you about is a texting app that keeps your privacy intact. Signal Private Messenger is available on Google Play and iTunes App Store. If confidentiality is crucial to your communication, Signal lets you stay private with end-to-end encryption and disappearing messages. Of course, you can make voice calls, too. I tried it out myself. It doesn't feel icky or like you're hiding something or doing something wrong, so to speak. You still have many of the same options you would in regular text messaging. You can use audio, video, various file types, and GIFs. Also, there's group chats. Now, most importantly, the server does not have access to any of this. Nothing you said, nada, and it doesn't store any of your data. In 2019, an app that doesn't store your data, well, that means it also doesn't sell or share your data. It's a real gem. It's open source, signal free, and from what I gathered in my experience, it moves pretty smoothly and quickly. If this podcast was helpful to you, make sure that wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's at iTunes or Google or Spotify, Pandora, you name it, is that you search for my last name, Commando. That's K-O-M-A-N-D-O. Hey, thanks, Jack, and I'll see you next time. Fantastic information there and really simple ways to keep stuff that you want private, private. And there's a lot of reasons to do this. Like Kim was saying, it's not really about hiding things from your loved ones or your family, but man, I'll tell you what, every layer of security that you add to a device is a, is better for you in the long run. You have no idea who may get their hands on that device. The other thing you don't, this is something people really need to think about. They always think about, well, you know, The cheating spouse thing and all like that that's yeah we're really neither Kim nor I are interested in helping you with that. But the other thing people always think about is law enforcement or hackers stealing your your uh, identity or your your credit card information so they can go spend it. What we don't really think about is someone basically acting as an operative in our life. You have no idea who's out there. One of our our six primary uh, areas of, of survival preparation is what security. You know how I say don't put those little stickers with like how many kids you have, how many animals you have, whether there's a mom and a dad or just a mom in the house, right? Uh, especially with names on them on the back of your vehicle because you're giving away too much information. If somebody gets your phone, especially somebody that gets your phone and maybe you left it unlocked and they can look through it, gather information and put it back down. They, you don't even know they have that information now. I really think it makes sense to put as much layer of security as you can into anything that has highly personal information that can be used against you in any way. And I'm really grateful that Kim brought these ways to do that to our attention. Turning next, again, these are not 
you know, expert council members. These are experts that we are fortunate to have available to us today for the stuff that my council and I can't handle. So I got this question um, about AV production, and I can do video production, audio. Man, I'll tell you, the guy that I'm about to bring on the air for you is the guy that set me up with my mics and uh, the mixer and all that stuff and, and how to do it. Because I don't have time to figure all that out. So I definitely don't know how to do something with equipment that I've never even used before. But Hatch is a great dude. And what I wanted to kind of point out to you guys in listening to what he's going to tell you about today, he's going to start out talking about how what he do, does today is a side hustle. and Or what started as a side hustle. Today this is a full-time business with employees. There's a reason that I push you guys so hard towards side hustles. You, you, you do that, and it is a low-risk way to test something. And if you do it long enough, you will find one that's the right path for you. And I, I bet you Hatch would agree. There is no freedom like being your own boss. And if we're talking about freedom and liberty here, which we do all the time, and one of the reasons we prepare is so that disaster, not just the systems, doesn't take that away from us, then we should strive for as much as we can. With that, here's how to make your AV sing with... Aaron Hatch. Hey, TSP. This is Hatch with Audio Imagery Design just outside of Dallas, Texas. Uh, I have an audio, video, lighting, and control system consulting, design, and integration company, as well as uh, doing live sound for film and post-production for uh, film, as well as uh, musicians, bands, and things like that. Quite a mouthful, and it uh, started out as a, a hobby side hustle, which has now turned into a full-fledged business here for eight years that... Uh, I'm busier than I want to be sometimes, but, uh, you know, it's a good place to be and I enjoy what I do. So anyway, uh, Jack threw me this, uh, technical question uh, about video production. Um, uh, so I'll try to answer best I can, but, uh, it's from a uh, Josh in Honolulu who is interested in making a Vimeo video how to series, uh, with the buddy of his, uh, so he plans to shoot with his pixel XL phone. Uh, USB mixer that he was going to run a couple Shure SM57 mics into it to get it into his computer. He then wants to mash it all together in the box and is asking how to make this happen and what a noob like him should be using to get it all together. He also was asking about uh, how to make his tower computer and monitor and recording gear, all his stuff more mobile. So we try to keep this straightforward and not uh, jump off into too many uh, tangents uh, but let's start with uh, some of the issues that you do get uh, when you're shooting video and recording your audio separately and this is a sync issue or you have to make sure that you're recording the same audio bit depth and sample rate that the video is recording uh, if you're at different bit and sample rates the audio is going to play back either faster or slower and it's all jacked up botching the whole production and, and ain't nobody got time for that so uh, I actually did a little test and loaded uh, a video off my phone into a uh, software I'll tell you about here in a second just to see what the uh, bit depth um, my phone was natively recording. Uh, and it came back 16-bit. Uh, it didn't give me the kilohertz, but I imagine it would be 44.1 kilohertz. So that's your standard uh, CD quality is 16-bit, 44.1 uh, kilohertz. Uh, and I would imagine most phones will be recording uh, in that uh, spectrum, uh, unless you've got some sweet app on your phone that allows you to get in there and make adjustments and choose your bit depth and your frame rates and all that stuff, uh, which would be pretty sweet, but probably most of us don't have that. So 
Um, so I'm not really going to dive into what Josh was wanting to do as far as getting his, uh, you know, using his laptop, his mixer, uh, some kind of audio software, and then different software for changing, you know, for uh, editing and uh, things like that. So I'm just going to go right into my recommendation, and uh, uh, I am going to recommend uh, that he keep his tower in the studio rather than going mobile and getting a device that will allow you to go mobile. Uh, now you're not have to worry about lugging gear and cables and power strips and extension cords and monitors, as well as worrying about the weather. And if something's, you know, storm rolls in and you're throwing all your gear in the truck and tripping over cables. And it's a man, I, you know what? I've done it. And, uh, that's why I'm recommending here something different here. Um, so I'm going to recommend, uh, these handheld audio recorders, uh, it's actually the, uh, the line is zoom. Uh, they have about seven different, uh, models of handheld, um, recorders with different attachments and accessories for different applications. Uh, I recommend the H4N, the H5 or the H H6, depending on your budget. And we're talking like 200 bucks for that H4 and, uh, 400 for the H6. And that H6, that's six tracks of recording in the field. Uh, each of these devices have a pair of condenser microphones mounted uh, on the front of them in a XY pattern, which gives you great stereo imaging. And they're also great for uh, picking up uh, sound bites, uh, getting sound effects. Uh, you can do uh, quick interviews with them. Because uh, the microphone is pointing each direction, but also with these devices, they have uh, professional XLR uh, cable inputs on them. So now you can be using super high-end microphones, uh, you know, shotgun mics, condenser mics, uh, things like that, uh, lavaliers. You know, plugging them right in. Um, so now all Josh has to do is put his phone on a tripod, hook up a couple of mics to the Zoom, hit record, give an audio slate like clanking two beer bottles together. Uh, this is so you can have a visual of where the audio transient needs to go. So that's like in the movies, you know, they use the clapboard. And so you see it on the video where it claps and then you have your video, your audio file and you see that spike. So you line those up. Boom. Now everything should, uh, fall in place given that you got the right bit rate and all that. There's no drifting. So now that the video shoots done, now what? I'm going to recommend a really sweet video audio editing program that is absolutely free. This program is so robust, robust and professional. I can't even believe that it's free. Um, but it is DaVinci Resolve 14 by Blackmagic. Uh, this program is pretty badass. That's all I got to say. Uh, you not only get professional multi-track video editing, but it incorporates tools for color correction and a dedicated window for doing your audio post, uh, which comes with EQs, compressors, limiters, all you need to deliver a professional product. Uh, there's also a tab uh, called Delivery for when you're ready to export a finished piece. Uh, uh, there's already presets for YouTube, Vimeo, and other professional destinations like Final Cut and Pro Tools and things like that. But, I mean, they've already got it set up for you. Go through, do your editing, do your post, and then you go to deliver, boom, go into Vimeo, and it's out. 
And there's also plenty of YouTube videos to get you started with importing, organizing, and using the effects and things like that. I uh, I reviewed quite a few myself uh, when I got going, but once once I got into it, I feel like it's pretty intuitive, and I'm able to uh, do what I need to do with it. It's great. So that's how I would approach this whole mobile mead making how-to video series that they're wanting to do. Uh, keep the studio computer in the studio, get a handheld recorder like the Zoom, use a couple of clip-on live mics, uh, which Josh said he had already, so that's good. Uh, shoot the episode, load it into DaVinci Resolve 14, do some post-production, fade-ins, fade-outs, titles, sound effects, render it out in video, post it, start writing the next episode. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, there's so much that goes into uh, making a successful uh, production. Um, oh, a couple tidbits for, for newbie producers. Please be aware of your ambient sound, like noisy air conditioners cutting on and off, planes flying over, someone's car alarm going off in the distance, a dog or cat coming through the set or jumping on the counter right when you're, right when you're in the middle of something. Yeah, so try to keep a controlled set as much as possible. Uh, you know, be, even being out in the field, it gets more difficult, but being aware of some of these things and, uh, uh, you know, even like wind noise on your microphone and things like that can just destroy the whole thing, you, uh, you know, when you're trying to put it all together late, later. And I hate that saying, of, oh, just fix it and post. This bullshit. Make it right the first time, you know? So doing a little bit of extra work on the front end can go a long way. So, all right, man, Josh, I hope this helps. Hope this uh, helps out anybody else too that might be um, thinking about this. Uh, and thank you, Jack, for pitching me this question. Um, happy to help out and give back to the community uh, that I've gotten so much from myself. So, all right, guys, man, keep it rolling, and I'm out. Great stuff. Way better than I could do. Honestly, some of it I didn't understand. I did want to give you guys that want to do video production for YouTube, Vimeo, whatever, um, a simple audio hack. As long as your editing program allows you to export files in a .wav format or .wav format, depending on how you want to say it, as an audio-only format, and then to bring a separate audio file back into it. This is what I do. Uh, when I do videos that go on YouTube off of my phone and some other uh, devices at times. Now, a lot of times I straight upload it. You know, if it's somewhere I'm sitting at my desk and the phone is really close to me and what have you, fine. But if, I am, if I'm going to go through the hassle, if I have three or four clips, I need to download them onto my computer. I put them back together. I fade them in, fade them out, add some text and some special effects. When I actually do full-on video production... Once that video is ready to go, what I'll do is I will render the audio portion as a .wav file, Microsoft WAV file. And then I use a free program called Levelator. Now, you wouldn't want to use any music uh, or things like that, but all of the verbal audio. I export that all as a WAV file. I drop it in Levelator, and this is a drag-and-drop uh, product. Basically, you install Levelator. When you open it, all it does is a little box comes up. It says Levelator on it. There's no settings. There's no controls. There's no nothing. And all you do is take any .wav file and drag it into the box and let go of it. And a little thing starts going, blah, 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 like making little audio bar things go up and down. And whatever directory, see, it was in on the desktop. Then on your desktop, when it's done, it'll spit out a file that'll be uh, output.file name, you know, .wav. 
I then drag that WAV file back into the video production. And since it came straight out of it, all you do is line the ends up. And then you just mute or delete the audio track that was from the original, and then the new audio track has level audio all the way across. If you're talking about like a 10-minute video, or even a 30-minute video, it literally adds less than five minutes of work. And it's probably two minutes of work. It's probably 10 minutes of production time to doing it. And Levelator is what I use to make the audio level on this show. I do the same thing with this show. I output a WAV file, which I obviously I'm not going to, you know, I mean, you guys would hate me. If I pushed an hour and a half WAV file into your podcast feeds, you guys would come to my house and beat me up. That's how bad it would be because of the file size. So, but I, when I pull it back in as the output version, I just convert it to MP3. And then that way you get that nice smooth audio all the way across, as long as I don't screw anything else up that day. All right, so now we are in our tech uh, segment of the show. So I got a question for Nicole Sauce on apps, building apps. Should you have an app and finding a good person to build your app since you probably don't know how? Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a techie question. Here it is. Thinking about starting a website with a possible app to follow, is there a good company for app making? Looking to make a marketplace-type website app that could link consumers to vendors and allow vendors to upload inventory to the app and consumers to purchase from the app directly to a specific vendor. Wouldn't have to do any shipping or anything in theory, as it would be mostly used on a local basis. I would hope to monetize this by charging a monthly fee to vendors or perhaps a small percentage of each transaction to the vendor. Is any of this possible? And if so... Is there a good company that could build this? Well, here's the thing. Anything's possible, right? If you can think of it, it probably can be done. The question is, should it be done? Is this something that there's a market for? And can you really monetize it, right? And then do are you talking about a web app or a device app? Like, what do you, what do you mean? So th- those are questions I started thinking about, but I'm going to back up and say, do you need an app? If you do a mobile-first design with this kind of a website and it works on a phone, do you need an app? Craigslist does just fine with no app, right? So, I mean, that was my first thought when I thought about it. But then I thought, okay, if I were going to be screening a vendor for development project, and what you're talking about here is, Getting into that realm of working with the kind of person Jack's been talking about in the last couple of weeks, who is a developer, not somebody who's a designer. And if you're going to go down that road, you want to be careful about screening because a lot of them underestimate the time it's going to take, get fed up and walk away if you do it wrong. And, and that's the risk when you're getting into any app development. Now, here's what I look for when I'm going to work with somebody on something that's either going to become an app or a, a website that's going to require some, you know, pr- predictive work or some database work that I, cause I don't do that stuff, right? I, I outsource that. And, the first thing I look for in a vendor is do they communicate well with you? Because there are a lot of people that can build you apps. 
You want to make sure you know what you want the app to do, why you want it to do it, who you're targeting with it, and some idea of how they're going to interface with it so you can go into that conversation prepared for the questions they're going to ask. And then when you start talking to them, the question is, do they communicate well with you? And if talking to them in the initial meeting is confusing or you feel talked down to or they're not listening to what you say. Eh, that's, that's an early indicate. That's the way the whole relationship will go. So that first communication is really, really important. Second thing I look for is do they deliver on their promises? Did we schedule a call and they showed up and guys, I've been guilty of, of missing calls, right? We all have, but you want to work with somebody who you can predictably get a hold of. Do they deliver on their promises? What examples of other apps can they show you? Is this like Johnny learning to make iPhone apps and he is, you know, it's his first one. He's reading a book and teaching himself. Johnny might be a great resource someday. Johnny might not be who you want to work with if you really want to get this off the ground. So what examples of other apps can they provide? And do they have customer references? I'll tell you this. When I have a good experience with a developer of any kind, and they asked me to give them a reference, even if it was for my top secret app that nobody knows I built because it was used in a political campaign, and I can't admit I did it because I have an NDA, they sure as heck can use me as a reference. I may not say what they built, but I will tell them what it's like to work with that person, right? And then, again, if you're prepared with knowing the parameters of what you're going to want, Try asking something stupid and complex. Like try, try asking something that should never be built as a feature and see what they do. Do they say, Hey, I'll get back to you. I need to spec that out. Do they try to guide you towards a simpler solution? Do they ask you that question? That's very important. Why? Because a developer who can ask you those questions and look for a more graceful solution to a problem or ask for the core underlying purpose. That's the kind of developer I want to work with because I know even if I have thought things through very carefully, there's going to be something I ask for that seems simple, that may not be simple. And I need somebody to tell me if you make these tweaks, it's going to cost you half the amount of money than if you do it exactly that way. And that's the other thing I would say, if you go into a development project for an app or anything else is know your goals and be open-minded to an alternative solution. The thing that engineers are great at is helping. If, if you let them and if you get the right engineer, the thing they can be great at or developer is helping you find the graceful solution, especially if you find one who understands user interface and that people have to interact with it who aren't logical, right? <laughs> so that said, when Spark Communications Group, which is my agency, has a need for app development or an enterprise site that needs more than I can provide, I work with thelibertylab.com. I've worked with them for 10 years. Scott Graves is very easy to work with, and he will ask why someone is trying to do something that seems unnecessarily complex because he would rather see you have something you love and have it serve your customer needs, then build the thing you asked for and have you mad at them. So that's why I've worked with them for a long time in app development. 
And the fact that I'm still speaking with him after 10 years of, of some pretty intense projects speaks volumes. But that is just one vendor. I've never needed more than one because he's been great. But you may want to look at a handful of things and, and get your RFP together and meet with a few people and see who works for you. But again, do you really need an app or do you need a, a site with a mobile first, a mobile friendly design? Anyway, I hope that helps you take your next steps. I would, I would say that think about how you can do this the simplest. And if a mobile friendly site design gets you there, go there, right? Okay. If you want to know more about me, you can check out my website and podcast at livingfreeintennessee.com. And you can also go straight from there, get this, to hollerroast.com where the coffee is, or to Spark Communications Group, which is all linked from that one site. And oh my goodness, I almost forgot. I don't know when this will air. It might air this week. It might air next week. But we did get another shipment of Jack's Blonde Bourbon Cooled Sumatran Bean Got about close to 50 pounds left. There were only 100 to begin with. So if you wanted to taste that and you didn't get in on the last batch, do head over to hollerroast.com and grab it while it is there. I do have an option set up where you can pre-buy two pounds a month for six months. And I roast it once a month and ship it to you so it's the fre- as fresh as it can be. Because I know some of you have been putting in bulk orders, thought you might be interested in that option. Anyway, guys, go out and make it a great week. Yeah, on the, the the coffee there at the end. I'm telling you guys, I put Nicole through heck to come up with this coffee blend and this this method of, of roasting. Uh, I went through like I guess like a dozen. She had to do little individual roasts for me and do the bourbon cooling and all of that, and then send them to me and then I tasted it and went back and forth and. What we came up with is out. Everybody that's tried it So this is just the most fantastic coffee that they've ever had. So you might want to give it a try. She's got she uh, she actually sent me this this morning. So uh, it is almost real time. And I just checked the site. She's 52 pounds left. So we didn't even really make a big announcement about it. And just from people that bought it before, we she sold what 48 pounds, uh, like kind of like that, like in a week. So people are buying it. This is not cheap. It's not cheap. But it's not the coffee you want to drink every single day. This is a coffee that you say for your quiet Sunday mornings, special friends, things like that. Give it a try. You'll see why. Uh, one of our favorite folks as a moderator on the uh, TSP Facebook forum calls it the Dorothy since it's Jack's Blonde. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, give it a shot. Next up, we're going to switch over to health and wellness for a little bit now. Uh, Nurse Amy on pediatric first aid kits. Hi everyone, Nurse Amy here, also known as Amy Alton. I'm part of doomandbloom.net team along with my husband, Dr. Joe Alton, or as Jack calls him, Doc Bones. I'm the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook and also Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. You can see them on Amazon or also our medical kit store at store.doomandbloom.net. Well, today's question for the expert council is from Chris, and he writes, Question for Nurse Amy on first aid kits. I was wondering what you would recommend having as part of an infant first aid kit. I have a five-month-old and almost two-year-old, and was wondering what I should have specifically for my kids that wouldn't already be part of my standard first aid kit. Thanks, Chris. 
Great question. As you've already figured out, a lot of household medical supplies and kits can be used for, quote, smaller people, too. Things like Band-Aids, gauze squares, tapes, antibiotic ointments and creams, calamine lotion, Benadryl cream, of course, aloe gel for burns, antiseptic wipes, cold packs. You have cotton balls and swabs usually hanging around the house, ace bandage elastic wraps self-stick adherent wraps. They're also called Coban. You may have heard of something called SAM splints, which is a pliable splint for fractures or to stabilize sprains and strains. There's something called a SWAT tourniquet, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Hemostatic blood-stopping gauze is always a great thing to have around if you have any hemorrhaging or severe bleeding. Compression bandages, a hot water bottle, soap, Sterile eye wash and eye pads to cover up the eye. Thermometers and triangular bandages. We're going to talk about more things, but that's just a quick list of what most people probably have in their house or have acquired over time. The trick to some of these items is to adjust the sizes. If the little person is much smaller than the adult, you can always cut gauze squares, fold over ace wraps, use shorter tape segments, and of course trim bandages if needed. These SAM splints we were talking about can actually be folded as needed over each other, and also they can be cut. But just remember, if you do cut them, pad the edges with some gauze or cotton pads. Sometimes children lose teeth. Sometimes those teeth are supposed to be lost, but sometimes they're not. If they lose a tooth that should not be out of their mouth, don't wash it off. It is probably the instinct to go ahead and wash off the tooth, but don't do that. They don't want you to do that. They want you to put it in milk. There's two places you're going to go. One is the dentist if it's, of course, office hours. If it's not, I would get my child to the ER with that tooth. So we're talking about nights and weekends. Go ahead and go to the ER. As far as the creams and ointments go, I would always look for the lowest dose. Of course, if they have a children's dose, that's what you're going to go for. But don't go for the ones that say strongest dose available. That's not what you want to put on the children. When choosing a thermometer, sometimes sick babies and children, I know this from my own kids, they're kind of fearful. Like, they don't want you to come at them with equipment. They already feel bad. They don't, they're just not themselves. And you start introducing strange equipment towards them or poking them with things, and they're just not going to be real happy. So you could consider something called a digital infrared forehead thermometer. And it usually also has an ear attachment, so you can use it as a, an ear thermometer, too. But what it does is it scans the forehead without touching the person, so you can take their temperature even while they're sleeping, which I think is so amazing, because certainly if your baby finally gets to sleep after having, you know, maybe an ear infection, they've been in so much pain and crying for so long, you don't want to wake them up by sticking something in their ear. So... Those are actually pretty handy. Please read the reviews. I have looked at them. I don't have a baby right this moment, and these things didn't exist when my children were really little. There are some good reviews and bad reviews. Remember, we have a lot of places in this world that make things that may not be necessarily the highest quality. So read the reviews. What you don't want to do is get stuck with a thermometer that is giving you inaccurate information. Because you might be making a decision, a life and death decision, whether to take this child to the hospital or keep them home. Side note, 
Do you guys remember the mercury thermometers? Well, my mom put that in unspeakable places. How scary is that? We don't do that to our kids anymore. Lucky them. So here's a few guidelines on fevers for children. Try to always use a digital thermometer to check your child's temperature. Never use the one I just discussed, the mercury thermometer. For infants and toddlers, um, be sure to use, if you're going to, a rectal thermometer correctly. A rectal thermometer could accidentally poke a hole in the rectum. It could cause a severe problem. Um, it might also pass germs on from the stool. So always follow the product maker's directions for proper use. If you don't feel comfortable, please use another method. And I would talk to the pediatrician and find out what method they prefer for the age of the child. So if you're bringing in a two-week-old, say, hey, by the way, if, my, if I think my child has a fever, what do you recommend? Because I think over time, as things are invented, of course, now there are all kinds of different thermometers. There's even one that's a pacifier. And I thought that was really interesting because if you have an infant that's used to having a pacifier in its mouth, of course, you stick the pacifier thermometer in there, the child's not going to notice and it's not going to bother them at all. So talk to the pediatrician. Find out what they recommend. Generally speaking, rectal and forehead temperatures of 100.4 or higher, of course, or as your doctor recommends, and armpit temperatures of 99 or higher are usually considered a fever. Now, I do think, and I did find this when even my children were little, that the pediatrician most likely has a brochure or instruction sheet about when you should alert them to fevers or other symptoms and put all this paperwork in a file so it's really handy when your child gets sick so you can pull that out and say okay now this is when they told me to call this is amy alton arnp wishing you the best of health and good times or bad thanks for listening oh do old doc bones and me a favor by checking out our medical kits supplies books dvds and more at store.doomandbloom.net that's store.doomandbloom.net You'll be glad you did. And don't forget that Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for 10% off anything in our store. Thanks again. So as we uh, continue our health and nutrition portion of the show today, let's uh, have Gary Collins on to talk to you about intermittent fasting. And by the way, great job from Nurse Amy. Remember, guys, if you send a question in and it says it's for Doc Bones, you're going to get Doc Bones. If you want the lady... You have to specifically call her out. With that, let's let Gary talk to us about, again, intermittent fasting. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com. And remember, my new book, Living Off the Grid, is now available. So those of you who have bought it, too, make sure to go there and review it. And all my other books, be nice, all right? Um, today's question, intermittent fasting, one of my favorite topics. I've been intermittent fasting for about, gosh, I want to say close to a decade now. I've been doing it for a long time, and there's it's it's it gets complicated, but it really isn't. The way you have to look at intermittent fasting is kind of mimicking our ability to find food as hunter gatherers. So that's where it comes from. We wouldn't have access to food twenty four seven. We would go through bouts of starvation, just like other animals and organisms do in the in nature. The best way to do it, and, uh, you know, Chris, it's 
it, it takes a while. And that's the thing I want to tell people is everyone wants to jump into keto, into this, into that. And it's like, slow down. Take it step by step. How do you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. For intermittent fasting, the best way to do it is 16-8. So you eat during an eight-hour window and you fast during a 16-hour window. But we're so used to consistently eating as Americans today that you have to work up to it. So the best practice, and it's not written in stone, I don't intermittent fast to a schedule. I eat when I'm hungry, which tends to be when I'm not working out heavy exercise days or anything like that. I'm riding, I'll eat one meal, maybe a small snack. Uh, workout days, I eat two meals. And that's it. And they're not very big. That's, I mean, people would be shocked if they saw how little I eat. Uh, but I'm, I'm not starving to death. Uh, I'm not withering away by any stretch. Um, so usually I'll break my, my fast breakfast, break your fast. Pretty interesting how it works. Uh, around noon, one o'clock. Sometimes I'll eat a little earlier. Sometimes I'll eat a little later. But on average, it'll be, it'll be around 16 hours on my fast. So I'll eat that first meal. Around noon, one, maybe two, I'll have my second meal, probably around 6.30-ish, and and that's it. You know, like I said, I may have a snack in between if I'm, if I'm hungry, but, you know, nothing major. And then, like I said, I go through the and fast through. Now, is there any dangers to fasting? No, not unless you have, if you have blood sugar issues, like type one diabetes, obviously, you don't, <laughs> you gotta be careful. Um, and if even if you have type two diabetes, you have to be careful. Um, intermittent fasting, like I said, work up to it. What I do is when I first started, you know, I was a grazer like everyone else, I would spread my meals out further and further. So I'd work up to it. So I was eating back then I was probably eating every couple hours. So I would go, okay, I'm not going to eat for four hours. And so I'd have a meal, not eat for four hours eat another meal. And I think I worked it down. I was a big, you know, I was into sports and weightlifting, all that. So I was eating six meals, five, six meals a day most of the time. So I drew it down and kept drawing the meals down, gapping the times out. And it took a while. I, I don't remember how long it took. I probably experimented with it for a year before I kind of got it dialed in. Um, and it, it's, it, it's a better way than trying to deal with sweet tooth and eliminate snacks. That's just, it's really hard to do. Um, the sweet tooth, the easiest way of that, man, don't buy it. Don't have it in the, in your house. That's what I do. If I buy it, I'm going to eat it. Bottom line, man, that sugar is a killer. It's like crack. So that's how I would do it. And that's how I have done it. And that's how I've taught people to do it. But again, it depends. Like the other day I did a 24 hour fast. I didn't plan it. I just wasn't hungry. I wasn't feeling good. So I didn't eat. That's all there was to it. Um, and far as working out and all that, once you and, and intermittent fasting too, what it does is it gets you into a fat burning mode. You know, keto right now is all the rage. You know, because all the people who are paleo now keto. Oh boy, we won't get into that. But your your body is made to burn fat, not fat all the time. Like some people will try and tell you, it doesn't work that way. Um, we can answer that. Maybe I'll do another one. I'll record one after this, talk about our energy systems. Um, so 
intermittent fasting makes you access those fat stores and burns it. Once you get a, adapted, fat adapted is what we call it. You have to get off the sugar highs in your body. It takes a little time for it to get in gear and then utilize fat for energy in a more better metabolic metabolic way. It's it, There's a whole host of metabolic pathways that are involved. So once you get there, you're not going to have any issues. I, I work out on an empty stomach all the time, if not 99% of the time. I don't eat before I go work out. I'm getting old. I can't go in there with a full gut anymore. So, you know, working during the day, you'll be fine. The key is being hydrated, to be honest with you. Uh, you're, you're not going to bonk. The only time you're going to bonk again is if you have blood glucose level problems, you know, um, you know, have in, a high insulin resistance, diabetic. That's when you're going to run into problems. So I hope that answers your question. And if you have any more, make sure to keep throwing them at me. Talk to you guys later. Okay, guys, and uh, great stuff by Gary. We're going to shift over now to talk about education here uh, with a great segment from Mike and Sue LaPreeze on uh, dealing with trying to homeschool as a two-income family. This is, again, the... Number one question people ask, and, and the reality is there's no easy answer, but there is a simple answer, and it comes down to, well, how important is your child's education to you versus a certain lifestyle? That's really what it comes down to. And Mike and Sue have some great points in this segment. Mike, Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, hey, Jack, hey, TSP community. Um, today's question is a follow-up. Uh, it's a question that Austin asked of Jack on episode 2373. And Austin was asking him and his wife, a dual-income family, and right now they can afford to put their child in a good private school, a Montessori school, uh, but in six years that won't be an option anymore. And they were trying to figure out what they would do education-wise when that six-year period is up. Okay, so... I think it's really important to remember that the first idea planted in your child's mind is the hardest one to unplant. Whoever's first with the information in your child's mind, they win the future. And you have to ask yourself, is that going to be me? Is that going to be the government? Or is it going to be the private school teacher who's there because their kid gets in free? I don't know. You have to decide that. But here's our perspective. Smart people let dumb people watch their kids all the time. During our last adoption, it was really interesting. We had to take a sudden infant death syndrome class. And it's the new information is that the rate of SIDS is decreasing, except it's increased in higher income families who have low income people watching their kids. It's a small number, but it reveals this concept. I'm a smart parent with a smart kid, but I'm too busy. So I'll leave my smart kid with some less intelligent people eight hours a day, five days a week. Yeah, and the odds of your child sharing your perspective when they've been 13 years in government school is pretty slim. We're constantly surprised by people that we've known, especially when we were younger, uh, people that we went to church with and other people that we socialize with, who are surprised that their kids don't share their philosophies in life. And they're saying, but we raised our kids differently, except their kids went through you know, 13 years, uh, more than 13 plus four, 17 years, 18 years of government school. College, yeah. Including college. Um, I company I work for, we had an executive. 
she um, was making a lot of money, over a million dollars a year, and she put her kid in a great private school here in the San Antonio area. Boarding school. A boarding school. And she drove by that boarding school every day on her way home and stopped to see her sons, two of them. They went to school there and they lived there full time. And my thought was always, why did she even have the children? Because they're never at home. They're away at boarding school. And then they went away to summer camp and she was making a great income. Right. But we want to live like, so our kids know that we wanted them. The education system isn't broken. It's just totally outdated. The assembly line mentality that goes into our government school is totally unnecessary because we need people with more in-depth subject knowledge, not hitting the highlights all the time. The gatekeepers of government-style education, including private schools, may not be operating out of malice. If anything, it's probably operating out of apathy. It's what we've always done. So for me, finishing two years of high school in three months at a government school just showed me that the whole theory of you have to show up and be there at school to do well, it's just a lie. It's a total lie. There's things that they don't consider like how smart are you, how good is the teacher, how interested are you in the subject. And next, going to school, is it about getting into college? You hear that a lot. It's a constant story, but most people who attend college who begin at least don't finish. The average person does better with the college degree we hear. But do we want to be the average person? Or you'll hear, you'll make more money if you have a college degree. But will they teach you to stay out of debt? Right. 77%, this is as of 2018, 77% of uh, student loans, so students, owed $40,000 or less. But 2.7 million individuals owed $100,000 or more. So... Uh, are we requiring our children to go into debt and then we tell them that debt is a good thing because the price of money always goes up? Yeah. Not necessarily so. <laughs> and so my mom taught at public school and private school, and she said in the meetings they were, especially the government school, 80% of the conversation was about teachers' pensions, insurance, and benefits. 20% of the conversation was about classroom management, usually zero on learning or even what's in the best interest of her students. And she didn't start teaching till she was in her 50s. She went to college after we all grew up. And it was so frustrating for her how little interest, either at the private school or the government school, there was in learning. So there's two routes that you can choose. You can choose the easy route or the scenic route. The easy route's faster and it's easier because it's what everybody else is doing the path is paved so wide, you can just zoom right down it with ease. But the scenic route, although more difficult, the journey itself produces more rewards, greater beauty, and a far richer experience. We just watched a documentary of a family with six children from two years old to 17 that hiked the entire Appalachian Trail in 161 days. The dad shared one of his favorite parts was listening to his young daughter spend 45 minutes describing her dream kitchen. This occurred during a stint of about 54 straight days on the trail without any zero days. There was no phone, email, no social media, just time spent together listening and hearing. Education isn't just outdated. It's damaging children. If you Google, is education damaging kids? 
you will find tons of articles on how sitting too long, not enough breaks, a lack of freedom, something only a mentally impaired adult would allow, and indoctrination that most schools were originally designed as religious indoctrination and now there's state indoctrination, it's worse because there's no moral compass. So last year we had some friends come over and talk to us about homeschooling their son who had just finished ninth grade. He was really struggling. He'd been medicated since he was seven so he could sit still in school and they were taking him out. And we recommended that they not do any curriculum and just give him a year to find out who he was and what he enjoyed. And they had just bought a little homestead and just enjoy that. Well, they didn't feel comfortable with that. So they got the standard online government school and that lasted two months. And it was just as much stress as going to school. So they threw that out and then he started building fences making new cages for animals because he had to have the cages before they got new animals. And after years of struggling with school, they're just enjoying their son and his passion for learning about different homestead concepts. Just the amount of time sitting kids do that's damaging them. You get on the bus, you sit, you get on school, you sit. It's just, as Jack would say, it's it's bass backwards or something like that. Yeah, and I'm a great example of that. So, you know, um, I would say we're of not being bass backwards. Being bass backwards, yeah. <laughs> we're not we're not hardwired to read. It's hard work. But the entire premise of forced education is you're stupid if you can't read by six, and really stupid if you can't read by the third grade, because at this point all the workbooks require reading. But actually, reading is hard. And I was a good reading. I was above average reader all the way through like the eighth grade. But as the concepts started getting more and more difficult and you had to consume more of that and learn it, I really struggled. So as I went through high school, I started slowing down, and as I got into college, I really struggled. So for me, the comprehension part is it's more uh, kinesthetic, and it's more auditory. I can listen to books on, on tape. I can listen to Audible podcasts. And, and podcasts, and I can YouTube. absorb all that information. I can watch YouTube videos, and I can do all that stuff. Yeah, get me to read a manual, and I will struggle. And we're born wanting to be ourselves and to do the things that we want to do. Then we get stuck in this tiny, segregated room with only other stupid eight-year-old kids and usually one tired teacher trying to manage a class rather than inspire souls. So we feel that the homeschool experience is a far richer environment for kids. For one, the person who loves them the most gets to teach them, inspire them, and watch them grow. Two... We get to teach our children our perspective on things, which is based on freedom. And so far of our adult children, we have one anarchist, three libertarians, and one who doesn't care about politics. But our perspective has always been you have to find your own way. And we love that we've had that opportunity. Number three, we don't have to worry about a broken system that is slow to change. We can improvise, adapt, and overcome based on our child's needs. Like we were studying astronomy the other night. We're out with our telescope. The neighbor girls came over and they're telling me this information. I was like, that's outdated information. We YouTube the latest thing from NASA today. And what they had learned was more than 20 years old. But that's what's in their textbook. So the scenic route allows us to see our child for who they really are, listen to what their dreams are, and provide for that. Homeschool allows for so much more free time to play rather than be managed by a system. Our little guys can spend a solid hour picking dandelion heads, running to the fence, and throwing them over. 
So remember, when designing the education you want your child to have, you have to see them for who they are and not how they fit into the system. Again, whatever education you decide works for your family, it will be your level of commitment that determines the outcome. Back to you, Jack. So I wanted to talk a little bit about you know my perspective on this. I, I, I think for a lot of people, homeschooling is, is probably the best option for their kids, especially if you want kids that are free thinkers, that are problem solvers, uh, that can figure out their own life and then figure out what they want to do. And, you know, if they want to get into college, they can get into college, but, you know, do they want to? And, and the reality is the standards to get into college are so low now, almost anybody can anyway. That's something we have to stop this this mythical belief that unless you know we live in a super high uh, performing school district, our kids aren't going to you know be either relegated to being a, a garbage man or the best they're going to be able to do is like some junior tech school or something like that. Um, top universities, yeah, but like man, talk about overpaying for something unless you have specific goals. But on the other side of this is my loathing of the public education system has steadily increased over the years. When my son was in school, there were some policies I didn't like at the school. I had one very serious come-to-Jesus meeting with a vice principal and a German language teacher. Um, it was only ever necessary to have one meeting. I'm not the person that you want to have multiple meetings with. Um, and I always saw public school, as I call it now, government school, is less than optimum but a valid solution as long as the parents remained the rudder, a sufficient counterbalance to the propaganda infused into the minds of our children. And simply holding your kids to a higher standard than the school does was in many ways sufficient to do that. There was always some level of basically propaganda in the school systems. And I believe academia has totally gone over the, 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 the ledge of leftism. I really believe that it has. And, and as most of you know, I am not, you know, your conservative Christian Republican. That is not me. I am at heart a pure libertarian. And I don't really like either side of the political spectrum. But I don't want my children brainwashed with either one of them. I want schools to teach the things that kids need to know so that they can learn. And that's really what education is supposed to be about. If you teach a child to do solid math skills, if you teach a child how to read, you teach a child how to write, communicate effectively, and you teach them the basic principles of science and history and some other things, they're well-rounded enough that when whatever it is they want to know about, they can learn. Specifically in a day and age where everything's digital, electronic, and immediately searchable. So that's... What I, I felt mostly like I was getting for my son, who's now 30 years of age. As my grandson moves through government school, my seething hatred and loathing, not of teachers, but of the system itself, is growing at an exponential rate. My grandson, who is eight years old, told his grandmother two weeks ago while they were driving home from school I don't want to be in a car. It's hurting the planet. His teacher is so effing lucky that I am his grandfather and not his father. Because you know that meeting I talked about that I had with my son's uh, German teacher and his vice principal? Yeah, we'd be having that meeting if it was me. So I 
more and more move toward if there's any way you can make it work, you need to. Because this lunacy is why we have people like AOC being rock stars, even though what they speak out of their mouth is complete gibberish nonsense. You got a person with a degree in economics that doesn't understand the first thing about money. I'm not even talking about politics here. I'm talking about like accounting, finance, economics, mathematics, degree in economics. Doesn't understand any of the words that just came out of my mouth in any rational Way, if you can keep your kids out of the system, do it. If you can't, then you need to be more than the rudder now. It used to be if you could just be the rudder on the boat. And you looked at the bad stuff in the education systems as crosswinds and headwinds. And you just maintained the rudder. Those winds could be channeled and useful. At this point, you have to be a complete counterbalance. You have to be talking, if you, if your kids are in government school, I get it. Not everybody can homeschool. I know people that do it feel like I do about business. Like, don't tell me you can't build a business. I built a business, you can build a business. That's how Mike and Sue feel. Hey, we did it. We've done it. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. We adopt more kids so we can do it again. So don't give us your heartache. But it's really not for everybody. Just like some people can pick up a guitar and just start playing it. And then people like me can make people that know how to play guitar Quit trying to teach you, okay? So not everybody's going to do it. But if that's the case, then you have to be having daily conversations with your children. What did you learn? What did they tell you today? What did you talk about? And when you hear nonsense, you have to counterbalance it. Here's what I told my grandson about this claim. I said, you know, I'm pretty old, right? He laughs. Yeah, you're pretty old. I mean, you're old as hell when you're a grandpa to an eight-year-old. I said, you know what? Way back when I was in school, you know, when the Flintstones were running around with running cars with their feet and all. I had this book, and we really weren't using our feet. We had gas, and we had cars back. Then he laughed again. Said, And this is a science book when I was in eighth grade, and it said that we had 35 years left of oil, and we would be completely out of oil. Do you think that was more than 35 years ago? And he starts laughing. And I'm like, do you know what you use oil for? He goes, to make gas. Said, do we look like we're out of oil? He said, no. So. Buddy, you got to understand, just because they tell you something in school doesn't mean it's true. Now, when you need to take a test, and you know what the answer is that they want to hear, you put that on the test, you got to always think for yourself. you got to always think for yourself. you got to think for yourself, did this teacher that's telling you that your car is bad, how does he get to school every day? Does she have a car? Well, yeah, okay. And aren't there a bunch of kids in your school that they don't, they don't get picked up by their parents, they take a bus? He goes, yeah. I said, what do you think runs that? He goes, well, yeah. But you you got to have these conversations. And in some ways, I think if you do it right, it can actually be beneficial if otherwise your child's a good fit in government school. Because instead of just, hey, here's the way things are, now think for yourself, it actually gives them the experience of being lied to and deceived by people dumb enough to lie and deceive them because they don't know they're lying or deceiving. They've bought into the nonsense. So my thoughts there. Next up, my question also to deal with education today. So this is more about funding, not just education, but your child's future. Uh, this was from Brian, and he says, What is the best alternative to a 529 college savings plan? Details. We have been saving for our daughter's future since before she was born. We have about 12000 saved up currently, and we're trying to figure out a better place than savings account to park this money until she will need it. 
And I've heard you loud and clear about 529 plans, so we're avoiding those for sure. She is only six years old, so it will be another 12 or so years until she might need the money. We are also still adding this money every month and plan to continue to do so. So we would like to have something that isn't static like a CD. Advice is appreciated. Thanks for all you do in building this TSP community. Um, let's, let's start off with something here. Um, she's six years old, so you got 12 more years until she's 18. It doesn't necessarily mean she's going to go to college, but 12 years before, like you're saying, hey, we might be using this money. There's some time for a little bit of risk in there, but is it really worth it? Is it really worth the risk? This money's earmarked for your child's future. You're not going to go all in on you know high return mutual funds that could you know experience a massive correction any time and you know have a fifty percent or greater loss in thirty days, right? That's not so. You, the, the, when you save money like this, and we think of 12 years as a long term, it's not really long term. Long term is when we're saving for our own retirement, and we're talking 30, 40, 50 years of savings. And even when we start drawing money out of retirement, we might be in retirement for 20 years or 25 years, which would be double you know, how long you have until this money might start being used for your kid's future. So first of all, I'm going to want to be incredibly conservative with this money anyway. So if I'm going to be incredibly conservative with this money anyway, one of the things I'm really not that concerned with is whatever taxes I'm going to pay on the gains. So before we, I'm going to talk to you about how we can tax shelter the gains in just a second. But before we even do that, if you really felt like, well, we got 12 grand here. I'd like to take six thousand and put it into, a, you know, a good solid dividend-producing blue chip stock. Buy a drip or dividend reinvestment uh, program directly from the company and let it sit there. And yeah, you're going to get a dividend statement every year, and you're going to pay, but do it in their name, uniform gift to a minor. And I'm not saying to do six grand. Please understand that. And maybe it would be three of them at two grand a piece. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to put it into any kind of a vehicle, the vehicle just shelters it. The only reason we do that is to protect the income from it from the tax man, right? So if, 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 you, if it was magically in a tax-sheltered vehicle right now, do you know where you would invest it? If you could invest it without putting it in there, just invest it and pay the tax on it. Put it in the kid's name. And that way, when that child reaches the age where they need to liquidate that security, all they're going to pay is capital gains on it. Okay? So some of it maybe just doesn't even need to go into tax-deferred status. Okay? Now, if we really do want to invest it, if you are not maxing out your Roth IRA, your wife's Roth IRA, put her money in your Roth IRA account. But it's for them. Okay, fine, it's for them. So what? You can take out money from your Roth IRA for qualified educational expenses. More importantly, though, whatever you put into a Roth IRA, you can take out of a Roth IRA with no consequences whatsoever. You don't have any penalties 
for withdrawing the contribution. Now, there is some level of the money has to be there for a certain period of time. You can't put it in today and take it out tomorrow, right? But you blow that away with a 12-year window anyway. And it's kind of a first-in, first-out. So if you've already been contributing to that IRA for years, if you already have a Roth IRA, your wife already has a Roth IRA, then, okay, it's sitting in that Roth IRA. If you've already contributed $20,000, you can withdraw up to $20,000 out of that Roth IRA, no matter what you're doing with it, and spend it on whatever the hell you want, including so your kid can go to helicopter school or so your kid can start a business. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, the reason you can't set it up in their name is you can't have a Roth IRA without income. You have to have income to have a Roth IRA, and then there's a limit on how much. But if you're not maxing it out, start putting her money in your Roth IRA. You can always get it out for her in the future. You can put it into whatever investments you want. They can grow tax-free. And then you can leave your to, their, to her and your inheritance whatever's left in there, or you can leave it in your retirement. The, the income and distributions off of it, you know, and if and if you if you're running a Roth IRA for yourself, you can always figure out well how much she should have gained, and you can distribute that to her, right? And that money comes out tax free again, and instead of giving her the money, you pay the bill. You pay the mortgage on the the office space she wanted to open if you agree, and you maintain a hundred percent control of the money. It's also protected as retirement if there's any kind of lawsuit or something like that. So that's another thing you can do. But let's talk about the easy option. What do you got against CDs? They're 100% safe. They give you a higher return than you get on a savings account. You could buy them laddered, which means, let's say you take and say, well, if she does go to college, it'd be nice if 25% of the money was freed up so you can buy you know, every... 12 months, you can buy another 25% in, and you always have 25% of the money coming up free every four years, or every year, over four years. So that's another way we can do this. You can buy good old-fashioned U.S. savings bonds. Oh, God, the government's going to go broke. Well, then cash is worthless anyway. Then your dollar-denominated stocks are worthless anyway if that's the game you're playing. right? If you really thought that, then you go gold and silver which I really don't think is the right place to put all this money either. Maybe a little bit of it there, but otherwise, you know. Don't be afraid that you're not making a high enough return on money that you're straight up saving for your, your kid's education. Even if you start saving the money when, you're, when your kid is a year old, 18 years is short-term money in the world of investing. It's not overnight money. It's not day trading money, but it's relatively short-term. I mean, you're saving in a neighborhood of $2,000 a month for your child's future. How much of it do you really want to risk anyway? And in the end, in the end, if you really feel that you would like to allocate it into investments, then you can open up a straight brokerage account with it and invest it that way. Put them on as a co uh, as a like, co owner of the funds. That way it's a seamless transfer when they come of age, but you, you have control, and you're good to go. I just don't think that we really need to think that much about tax-sheltering gains on money that we're specifically saving for a child's life establishment fund. Now, when they get older, if it turns out they don't need that money right away, 
they might start sucking, st sucking some of that money into their own Roth IRA, which they can do. And if people say, well, well, how would you do that, Jack? Because you can't write them a check. Pay their bills. Take a distribution and use the money to pay their bills. You come up with a plan together. You know what, Dad? I really appreciate you did this for me. Uh, I went to tech school. I still got a lot of money in, in there that we didn't need because I, I, I spent so much less money than I thought we would. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you know, $800 a month into my own Roth IRA, pay her rent with the distribution, pay her rent, and let her – you see what I'm saying? Like this is not complicated. Again, 90% of the tax code – Is what you have to, is how you get out of it, and 10% is what you have to do. So there's a lot of ways you can deal with this stuff that, that, that is a lot safer. But, but if it was me, I would keep the majority of this money in 100% safe investments, which are going to have relatively low returns. And if there's any tax, tax consequences, just pay them. There's a lot of other ways to get out of taxes other than sheltering your money in vehicles to tell you how you have to use the money. Uh, that's why I hate 529s, because they tell you how you have to use the money. Your kid's six. They are as likely to be right for college as they are to be wrong for college. And let me tell you what I think the most dangerous thing is about earmarking money for college instead of your child's future and putting it into anything that requires college or requires a certain type of education to get the money out without penalty. It will cause you and your children jointly to make the decision to go to college even when you shouldn't, even when it's not right for them. Well, you have the money, and since you don't know what you're going to do, you might as well go to college because you have the money. What if my kid gets to be 18, 19 years old, graduates high school, doesn't want to go to college, doesn't really want to get a job, blah, 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 blah. Don't give them the money. Don't give them the money. Let them figure out their life. When they get their life on track, then make the funds available to them when they have a good, solid plan for it, like Well, I'm not going to college. Let me put it in my own Roth IRA. Here's the beauty. They put it in their own Roth IRA. 24, they're in a job. They're progressing for it. Their employer provides some tuition assistance. They decide they want to pursue their degree, but they need to fund some of it. Since they made the contributions, they can take it straight out just the way that you would. Do you see how simple this really is? But we make it hard. We, we don't need to make it hard. Now, just a real quick finishing segment here. Um... When I saw this question for today, it made me think of a conversation my wife and I were having yesterday. And um, it goes back to one of my favorite advisors on debt, one of my least favorite advisors on investing because just buy mutual funds and wait is not an investment strategy I can endorse. I just don't like that. Of course, I'm talking about Dave Ramsey. And I think when it comes to getting out of debt and how to manage your spending, Dave Ramsey gets an A-plus. When it comes to investing, he gets about a C-plus. Just that's how I feel. All right, so, um, but managing money and controlling income and increasing income and thinking smart about the money that you have, again, he's, he's an ASAT. I used to listen to him on and off, and I just happened to catch both sides of this thing spanning a summer. And he had a young girl that called into him. And she was very upset with him because she had found him and she had started listening to him about all how evil debt was. And she had been all ready to start borrowing money. She had been accepted to, to college. She had no idea how she was going to fund it. She was looking for jobs uh, through the summer. 
And even if she had to borrow some money, she wanted to borrow as little as possible. And she was upset with him because he made her believe him. She said, the only jobs I can find make very little over minimum wage, maybe working as a waitress or whatever, but since it's only part-time for the summer, I'm going to get the crappiest shifts, you know, or I can work at a toy store, or I can work at a, you know, a grocery store, something like that. I'm going to make barely minimum wage. There's no way I'm going to save anywhere near money. If I don't spend a dime this summer while I work so hard, I can't make a dent in my first year of school. How am I going to get through school without debt? And he said, well, have you applied for scholarships and grants? And she said, I don't qualify for Pell Grants. My family makes too much money. There's so many people rating that. He said, no, what about all the other scholarships that are out there? Well, I'm not in sports. I'm an okay student, like I'm an AV student. Applied to a couple universities you know, for a full academic scholarship. Didn't even get a partial. He said, no, all the other scholarships. All the other scholarships. Have you applied for all the other scholarships? She said, what? All the other What do you mean? And he said, there are literally thousands and thousands of scholarships that are available. And a lot of them are $900, $1,500, $1,200, Some are big, but a lot of little ones out there. A lot of them involve things like writing an essay, stuff like that. Some of them are just flat out like drawings that you enter. So what I would do if I were you is I would take every single day this summer and apply to at least three scholarships every day. That's your job. Apply to three scholarships. And he's like, and when you start out, it's going to take a long time. But as you get through it, you're getting, like anything else you do over and over, you're going to get better and better again. And you might find that if an essay did well and got you a scholarship one place, using it another place, maybe changing a little bit and making it fit better, they won't know that. It's not like you're taking somebody's term paper off the Internet. It's your own. It's your own work. And she said, three a day? He said, at least. At least. He said, you can take weekends off. Fifteen a week. Apply to, for 15 scholarships a week for 12 weeks of summer. Call me back. The end of summer. This girl, thinking about the fact she was 18 years old listening to Dave Ramsey in the first place. This girl did it. And she said, I can pay for my entire first year of college. And I still have some money for my second year. And all I did was what you said. Huh. Funny that. Now, here's a couple things about this girl. She was smart. During her summer, she stayed at home with her parents. Number two... She went to school in-state. Now, she didn't go to, like, a junior college or whatever, which also is an option. She went to a full-on university, but she went to, like, I don't remember what one it was, but, like, my son went to UTA, which is University of Texas, Arlington. So it was UT, but the Arlington campus. So he could live at home. So she lived at home, went in-state. How many of these kids with a little sign around their neck, like an idiot, $225,000 in debt, okay, How many of them applied for more than 10 scholarships? And how many of them went to school in-state? Even if they leave home, even if they live in the dorms, out-of-state tuition is ridiculously expensive. And it seems like it's some rite of passage, especially for you know upper-middle-income white kids just have to go away to school. And it, it is completely preposterous because the kid that's like, gee, I want to go away to school, and they're living in Pennsylvania... 
You know, and they're going out to like Colorado. Some kid in Colorado's going to Penn State. Paying a hell of a lot more because they're paying out of state tuition. You want my advice. If, if college is right for you, first of all, you should have good grades if college is right for you. Secondly, you should be able to do excellent academic work if college is right for you. If you can't tick those two boxes, if you can't tick those two boxes, repeat after me, college is not right for me. You should be able to get good grades in high school and do excellent academic work. If you can get good grades in high school and you can do excellent academic work, and if you apply for as many scholarships as you can, you're going to get a bunch of them. Not all of them, 5%. But this was the upshot from that young girl. She said, there is not a job I could have worked. Not a single job I could have worked that I could have made this much money for my education as I made applying for these scholarships. And if I work it out by the hour, it's ridiculous. Thank you. She was almost in tears. She went from being angry to so grateful she was almost in tears talking to him. And he said, did anybody suggest this to you? And she said, no. There are billions and billions of dollars out there in individual, small, private scholarships. And if college is right for you, You should be able to do excellent academic work and back it up with a good track record in high school. Go get it. And, and again, I'm sorry, but if you don't have good grades in high school and you can't do excellent academic work, then you don't need to be going to college. Now, if you take remedial, you know, whatever you need in education so that you can do excellent academic work, you can probably take your failure in high school, your mediocre high school, and apply it with your newfound ability, and find scholarships for people like you. If you can't do what I just said, you're not capable of college-level work. If you can't apply for at least a scholarship a day, the summer of your senior year every day, you're not capable of university work. Go find something else to do. I know it's not super easy, and I know not everybody's going to get the results this girl did. But whatever you get is money back in your pocket, and here's how it pays twice. If you work your ass off all summer long and you make $10,000, you pay tax on $10,000. If you work your ass off all summer long and get $15,000 worth of scholarship money, you don't only have $15,000 for your education, you don't pay any tax. If you don't understand how important that is, you're not ready for college either. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up today. Remember, if you want to support this show, you can always do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, where you can see everything I've ever reviewed on Amazon. Remember, if it's there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, and I would buy it again. You can't buy your way into a, a tspaz review. I have to value what you do, and I have to be willing to spend my money on it, or I will not ask my audience to do so. Uh, today's item of the day is one I love, and I almost lost it one time. Somebody actually, I felt better when I heard this on Facebook today. Don't let it go into the garbage disposal. You might have to replace both. It is the Ringer Cast Iron Scrubber. Now, I have actually, I recently did the, the uh, carbon steel skillets uh, from Lodge as one of my items of the day. And as I said, I have kind of left my cast iron behind. I still have it. I'm nostalgic about it. I like it. You know, I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to find like a $10 pan that was 100 years old and all rusted out of flea market and turn it into like a perfect piece of cookware. But the carbon steel skillets, they get hot faster 
and they just seem to work better, and they're lighter and easier to toss food around with and stuff like that. But these ringers, they don't just work for cast iron. They work beautiful on carbon steel skillets as well. You eventually take care of carbon steel the same way. I love my ringer. It's like a little piece of chain mail, and you use it to clean all the sticky stuff off of your pots and pans. Now, here's the thing. Some people will tell you it's okay to use soap on your carbon steel and your, your cast iron. These people are not to be trusted. They're not bad people. They just don't know any better. Never use soap on your carbon steel or your cast iron. Use hot water. Heat the pan up. Get a pan nice and hot. Turn the water on the sink, cold water, and hit it with cold water. 90% of what's on there will come off. Dump the water out. Add a little more water. Careful not to burn yourself from heat retention. Take the ringer and give it a scrub and rinse it out again. 99% of the time, that's all your pan will need. Give it a, a wiping out with a paper towel. Hit it with a little bit of oil. Heat it back up to drive any moisture off it. Wipe it down once it cools off. Set it aside, and it'll last 100 years or more. You'll be dead. Your great-grandkids will be cooking on your cookware if you do this with it. If there's a little extra stickiness on there, time for nature's scouring powder. Kosher salt. Take a big, do what I said already. After that second time, there's still some stuff stuck on it. Heat it back up again. Hit it with the cold water again. Throw a couple pinches of salt in there, and then take your ringer. It'll come out crystal clean. As long as you always clean it all the time, you'll never have a problem. And cleaning even the nastiest pans for me is less than two minutes a pan using the ringer. Check it out. The garbage disposal comment. If you have a garbage disposal and, and the ringer falls into your sink, it will go down that disposal like a snake trying to get away from you. It really just instantly, boom, gone. If you don't see it, you turn the disposal on and a piece of chain mail. And for, fortunately for me, like as soon as I hit the switch, it was like, oh, I turned it on like something's in there. And I'm sticking my hand in there trying, I'm like, what the hell is this? It, oh, it's my ringer. Apparently my friend on Facebook that had it happen wasn't quick to react and ended up having to replace his ringer and his disposal. You have thus been warned. Anyway, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Brings us to our song of the day. Uh, we are wrapping up Chris Stapleton week. We have the first song I ever heard Chris Stapleton uh, play, Tennessee Whiskey. As I said before about Chris, I first heard about him. He was on some award show. I don't remember what it was. Some, I, don't, I don't watch award shows. I don't... I don't watch celebrities pat themselves on the back and, and, and give themselves awards. I just don't care. But uh, somebody said something about the awards, and I said, well, I don't care anyway. He said, you should have seen this guy, Chris Stapleton. And I've, I've said, like, when I looked him up on YouTube and listened to him, I was like, as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, wow, this is different. This was the song that made me feel that way. Now, Tennessee Whiskey goes back to the 70s. was first cut by David Allen Coe. went up to, like, number 77 on the charts. And then it was recut as a cover by George Jones in 1983, where it went up to number three on the country charts. It became something that George played at all his concerts and stuff like that, one of his most iconic hits. Seldom do you have people in the past like that where somebody remakes a song and it's better. It's not just better. It's a whole lot of better. I love George Jones for who he was. David Allen Coe's had his moments good and bad. But man, George Jones, you talk about an icon of country music, but really George overlapped a change in country music, a good change. There's been a recent change that's turned country music into pop crap. I don't like it. You know, cowboy rap, 
C-rap crap. Don't like it. And music that's no different than, than the pop station, I don't like it. And bubblegum country, I don't like it. But in the 70s, people like Charlie Daniels came around. And in the 80s, probably the greatest country music band of all time, Alabama, came around. And people like Garth Brooks and people like uh, uh, George Strait changed country music and brought it into kind of its modern world. And we had this bullcrap in between. And I had almost given up on new country music being good. And people like Aaron Lewis and Chris Stapleton have renewed my faith in country music. This song, as good as it was, the way that George Strait or George Jones did it, um, this is totally different. I've talked about covers before and somebody making them their own. There is almost no resemblance between the two versions other than the lyrics themselves. And sometimes you almost have to check the lyrics to be sure because it's that different. And Stapleton is just that good. It's also... An awesome song to wrap up a week with. I hope you're, at least by now, driving home from work and about to enjoy your weekend. Hey, remember what I always say. It's a sliding scale in life. You're either working on your freedom, independence, and liberty, or life is pushing you backwards. So make good things happen this weekend. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah. 